Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, the art history of New York's Coenties Slip. My guest is Prudence Pfeiffer, the author of The Slip, the New York City street that changed American art forever. The book, which is out this week from Harper, is a group biography of seven artists, Robert Indiana, Ellsworth Kelly, Agnes Martin, James Rosenquist, Delphine Seyrig, Lenore Tawney, and Jack Youngerman, who worked on Coenties Slip in the 1950s and 60s. Coenties Slip was a street that overlooked the East River in Lower Manhattan. Coenties Slip is still a street. It doesn't quite overlook the East River anymore. Pfeiffer's book argues for not only the importance of the artists themselves, but for where and how they worked as being important to the development of post-war art in New York. Pfeiffer is Director of Content at the Museum of Modern Art, New York. Amazon and Bookshop offer the slip for about $22 to $36. On the second segment, the J. Paul Getty Museum's recent co-acquisition of Joshua Reynolds' Portrait of Mai. But first, Prudence Pfeiffer, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Impressionist and Post-Impressionist Masterpieces from the Perlman Foundation. See works by outstanding artists such as Cezanne, Degas, Gauguin, Van Gogh, Manet, and Medigliani. During the late 19th and early 20th centuries, these artists had the ability to travel across Europe. They shared paths, shared ideas, and shaped each other's work. And this exhibition highlights their friendships, their locations, and sites of their work. The show is sponsored by Princeton University Art Museum, the Henry and Rose Perlman Foundation, and the Kinder Foundation, on view through September 17th. Learn more at mfah.org impressionist. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Becoming Van Leo, the first international survey of the late Armenian-Egyptian photographer. Working under a pseudonym, the artist known as Van Leo rose to prominence as one of the Arab world's most celebrated studio photographers from the 1940s to the 1960s. The exhibition follows his career into the 1990s and includes many works on public view for the very first time. Becoming Van Leo is on view at The Hammer from July 15th to November 5th. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Lyle Ashton Harris, our first and last love. Drawing together photographs and installations from both his celebrated and lesser-known series, the exhibition charts new connections across the artistic practice of Lyle Ashton Harris, who was born in the Bronx, New York, in 1965. The exhibition explores Harris's critical examination of identity and self-portraiture while tracing central themes and formal approaches in his work of the last 35 years. Lyle Ashton Harris, our first and last love, on view at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University from August 24th to January 7th, 2024. And we're back. Prudence Pfeiffer, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Tyler. What was the Coenties slip? Jumping right in. Yes. Well, starting in the 17th century, it was a, a waterway berth for ships that cut into the lower southern tip of Manhattan. And over the course of hundreds of years, it had many different lives related to its maritime roles. And then in the 1950s and into the 60s, in a kind of unexpected 
moment or a swerve in its history, it became the home for a group of unlikely artists who came to live and work there in the illegal sail-making lofts and Chandler buildings and industrial buildings that had you know, been there for a long time. Well, they were living in 19th century buildings, but obviously the, the history of the street goes back much farther to the founding of New York. And yeah, my, my, my book is about the kind of very brief moment when these artists were living there and in a way, as I argue, channeling some of the deep history of, of this slip. We are going to get to those artists in a moment, but before we do, how did there come to be empty buildings there for artists to you know, wander on into? And why did the artists feel able and even empowered to just saunter on in? So, I mean, a part of it is, I think, around the eternal evolving real estate of New York City. But really following World War II downtown, there was a lot of vacancies around commercial buildings. And it's kind of a, a story, too, around the shift in the east side of Manhattan, which once was really the center of commercial industry, the kind of commercial hub of the city. But things had really shifted over to the west side and the west docks. And also, you had a, you had a, let me interrupt with a great stat. You had a stat in the book that at the time that shift is happening, the port on the east side of New York was six times larger than any other port in the U.S. And due to a federal decision, shall we say, that changed almost overnight. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really, I mean, it's so fascinating. There's so many different intersections of, you know, laws and byways and just the way, you know, the different, yeah, the different ways that industry has shifted in New York. And also, you know, even just thinking about in that downtown area, how there was this real shift kind of from the sea to the sky, in terms of, you know, the the financial district and all of the kind of huge skyscrapers that ended up populating that area that really had been a very low-lying kind of, you know, maritime warehouse landscape before that. So, so yeah, there were a lot of, and then, you know, I think also following World War II, you had a lot of kind of exodus to the suburbs and, you know, even a kind of shutting down of certain industries that were related to the war. And so all of these different factors combined to have, you know, to this moment where there were, you know, even as it was still a, a working port and you did still have sailors coming and, and staying in this incredible Siemens Church Institute, which hopefully we can talk about a little bit more later. But you, you know, it also was a moment where there were lots of vacancies. And I think, you know, people eager to have them filled. And I think, why did the artists feel like they could, could live there? Well, I, I mean, I think that is a part of the kind of creative ingenuity of making do when you have, you know, absolutely no money and a real need for space to work. And if you, and you're kind of always on the lookout, I mean, there, it felt like there was this real network of, you know, artists looking out for each other and letting, letting each other know when there was a space available. And so, you know, Fred Mitchell is kind of this, the artist who originally invited Elizabeth Kelly to, to come down there. And he knew the area because he was actually um, teaching some classes down there and working at the Siemens Church Institute at some point. And, and then, you know, others invite others. So the kind of news spread that there was this, these buildings available for very, very little money. 
And of course, you know, even, even when the artist moved there, it already was a neighborhood in the midst of incredible, well, I don't know what, what the right word is, because development, I guess, but that sounds sort of maybe more positive than the, I mean, it, dem, demolition, certainly. And, you know, because the city, even as it had had this kind of moment of, of pause, was suddenly in this incredible moment of construction. I think, you know, in 1957, there were more construction projects than ever before. And then that was beat, you know, that number was beat in 1958. And a lot of them were situated downtown because it was this area that, you know, due to shifting trade and, you know, just in general, had sort of more vacancies and more potential for development because there are a lot of, there's a lot of sky rights available because that profile had been so low with these maritime buildings. You mentioned Fred Mitchell a moment ago. We're going to come back to him. But before we do, who were some of the artists who, I don't know, gravitated is the right word, but but ended up at Coenty's Slip? And then like, where there did they end up? Was there one building? Was there five buildings? What did it mean to end up and work on Coenty's Slip? Yeah, so my... My book really tells the story of the central seven, I guess I would say, but there are, you know, several other artists that are really important to the story too. But so it's Robert Indiana, Ellsworth Kelly, Agnes Martin, Lenore Tawney, Jack Youngerman, Delphine Serig, and James Rosenquist. I think that's, is that seven? Yeah. Anne Wilson, the artist and writer, was also there for a brief period and then, you know, Fred Mitchell wasn't living there, but he was really the, as I mentioned, the person, the artist who invited Kelly down to that neighborhood in the first place. Oh, and in terms of what, what that meant in terms of living on the slip. So by the time the artists were there, the slip was no longer a waterway. It had been filled in in the 19th century, in part because of real estate reasons and in part because, you know, there was no, ships were no longer coming in there. And also there was an issue of, People oftentimes late at night, I guess, perhaps in different states of inebriation, falling into the water. So it was thought safest to fill it in. And that's, you see that with all of the slips. There were at one point 12 of these waterways kind of cutting into the, into Manhattan, little, little paper cuts if you look at a map. And so the slip was basically sort of three, three blocks long. And the artists were, living in three, well, four different buildings, the first on three different blocks. And then, you know, basically as buildings were destroyed, they would move to another building on the same block. But so you have 3-5 Coenty Slip, which was kind of the farthest from the water, right adjacent to Pearl Street. And that's where Elsa Kelly was, James Rosenquist, Ann Wilson for a brief period. Charles Hinman is another artist who never lived there, but worked there briefly with Rosenquist in his studio. And then 25 Quenty Slip is where Robert Indiana moved after his building 31 was raised. And then 27 Quenty Slip was the whole building Jack Youngerman rented out and then would rent floors to different artists. So that's where Agnes Martin started out for a period and before moving to 35 Quenty's and Lenore Tawney was there. This amazing cabaret actor, Jerry Matthews, who I got the pleasure to speak with, also lived there for a while. And then, you know, the artists moved to, some of them moved to other buildings that are basically on the slip. So Lenore Tawney moved just around the corner to South Street, 25 South Street, which is 
basically there and Agnes Martin as well. So, and then Jack Youngerman also moved to another, another loft that was closer to the Siemens Church Institute. So they, you know, they were hanging on for as long as they could to stay in that neighborhood, but really, you know, needing to react to the, the harsh reality that, you know, very few of the buildings were, were, were permanent, were going to stay. Drunk people falling into things will be something of a theme in the book. Agnes Martin, you tell the story once, once had a drunk sailor just kind of wander in and she discovered him and her only real complaint was that he'd worn his shoes in the house. Yes, yes. Um. <laughs> that was an amazing, amazing story that Jack Youngerman told me about, you know, Agnes coming up to his apartment very concerned and that there literally was a, a, a sleep, someone asleep in her bed, basically. <laughs> Which also, you know, just goes to show the kind of trust of, you know, I think that Kelly was sort of so shocked that she just didn't even lock her door and that this was, you know, something that happened. And yeah, there were a lot of, I mean, one of the, the kind of fascinating aspects of researching this book is you start to realize that one of the ways to kind of learn about what's happening on a street is to read police blotters because that's sort of where <laughs> the where like actual place, you know, a place name shows up. And so a lot of the kind of early mentions of the slip have to do with inebriated sailors in bars, you know, on the slip at a certain period or, you know, more sordid crime that happened around people being, you know, drinking in, in, these, uh, in these salons and then getting violent. So we've got the place, we've got the character of the neighborhood, we've got some of the artists who are there. Before we go on, I want to kind of nail down the big theme, kind of the, the thesis almost, if you will, of the book, and that is place. While across New York art history, many buildings have been associated with art movements or a certain type of work. Take in the 19th century, the 10th Street Studio Building, which was home to the first great group of European-American artists, including Frederick Church and Albert Bierstadt and Heed and later Winslow Homer, and on and on, purpose-built building, I might add. And the artists you mentioned were not all doing kind of similar things, like Bierstadt and Church were, although they certainly had different ideological interests. They were doing kind of opposite things. So if a type of work wasn't at the heart of shared artistic experience at Coenty's Slip, and I think here we're getting to the heart of your project, what was? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think that one of the ways that I was looking at place was really thinking about how what living at the slip made possible for this group of artists, you know, and I think, as, as you mentioned, they were all doing very different things. I mean, sometimes they were doing similar things. And then because of their proximity to each other, they merge. So you have, or they, you know, they merge away. And so you have an artist like Robert Indiana, who comes to the slip as Robert Clark, and he's really young and ambitious, and he doesn't even quite know what he wants to be doing. And he's experimenting with all different kinds of painting and, and heavily influenced by Ellsworth Kelly, who he has a relationship with very early on in his time at the slip. And, you know, then he starts to make these abstract orb paintings, and he notices that Agnes Martin is already making her beautiful gridded circles and he thinks, oh, okay, that I need to, you know, swerve away from that. So there were ways in which I think, you know, these artists were heavily influenced about what they did and did not want to do by noticing what their, you know, what, what their fellow artists were doing. 
But they also were allowed to kind of, or given a certain space of productive independence that also had very everyday support built in. So, you know, even though they were not writing manifestos together and thinking about, you know, this, this big artistic movement that they were all doing, and even though they were making woven forms and abstract paintings and representative paintings and collages and drawings and assemblages and sculptures, so all very different things, they were also, you know, there were moments in which Lenore Tawney would pay uh, Robert Indiana's electric bill for him, or, you know, Ellsworth Kelly would introduce Betty Parsons, his gallerist, to, to Jack Youngerman, or you know, there were all these sort of moments of very, you know, quiet sort of generosity, I think is a word that I, that I use in the book, that allowed them to have this, to have this really productive time there, each in their own way, kind of having, having breakthroughs, but not in the kind of big, bombastic way, I think, that we typically that typically, let's just say, our hard history narratives are often written in terms of breakthroughs. And so, so there's, there's that aspect of what the slip allowed. But then there's also a kind of, I think, material connection to place that's also at work in that time. And, you know, both in a very literal way, because many of these artists could not afford to just, you know, go to the art supply store and get their canvases and paint. And so they were you know, really salvaging a lot of materials from the street. And you have a huge number of them who are working actually in in assemblage and, you know, taking pieces of wood and scrap metal and the stencils from old Chandlerie buildings and, you know, maritime stencils and using those materials. Or even, you know, something like Robert and Deanna taking this very cheap, basically, particle board walls, the hemisote walls, that were in his loft building and kind of ripping them down and using those as the, the kind of background structure for his painting because he couldn't afford canvas. So, and of course, these materials, many of these materials are directly related to the long, deep history of, you know, this area and this place. And then you also have the kind of more intangible way that a place, I think, gets into artworks in terms of maybe the spirit of a place, you could say, not to, you know, make it sound too romantic, but, and there, you know, there's this kind of amazing long history of American literature and, you know, art that is sort of surrounding this place. So you have Coeny Slip is, is sort of name-checked very famously in Melville's novel Moby Dick or the Whale, but also in his novel Redburn. And, you you know, you have this sense that, it is it is this area with with this you know incredibly deep cultural history outside of even just the kind of maritime history and, and Walt Whitman you know writing about the ferry that's just coming right in there at the end of the slip and so this is also something that's brought in very literally by Indiana again in some of his paintings but also in the kind of ethos of you know what the artists were were thinking about and 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 the way that they you know what they were making and you also have i think you know they all talked about this proximity to the water like being able to walk out their door and you know go for a walk and for some of them you know you have Rosenquist kind of smoking a joint and walking around the neighborhood and trying to figure out you know where his inspiration would come from you have Agnes Martin who you know talks about walking over the Brooklyn Bridge and back and kind of almost as a kind of crisis of, 
you know, trying to figure out what to do next and also, you know, to, to quiet, sometimes to quiet the voices in her head. And you have almost all of the artists going on the Staten Island Ferry, like the Staten Island Ferry becomes this, like, has this starring role, including for, you know, Rauschenberg and Johns and, and Twombly who are, you know, nearby, but not, not on the slip and, and sort of very decisively not in terms of the artists who were living on the slip. And, and so there's lots of ways in which, you know, having that, you know, being the kind of contingency of this strange street that once was water, and even though it is filled in, is so close to the water and is so much about this kind of edge of the city, and, and so much so also that the artists talk about leaving Manhattan to return home, which is very kind of funny to me, kind of wonderful way, and that and the importance of that apartness. And I think, you know, that that's also something that was so specific to the kind of sighting of this place and really, again, allowed, because it was such a kind of desert after 5 p.m. when, you know, the financial district shut down and really the only people there were sailors or these artists. Um, and so all of that, I think, just really contributed to how they were thinking about, you know, what they were making and, and how that kind of, you know, very special and, and strange place for this very brief period of time kind of gets under their fingernails in terms of, of how they're, what they're producing. Among the materials from the broader area around the slip that washed up in artist studios was a set of Monet's stretcher bars. We will leave that story for uh, people to read in the book. Go, go find it. I think that in, in the book, as you're describing place and placemaking and what made the place generative for so many artists, and I don't know if you like come out and say this in the book this may just be my sense but but i think your argument was that you were is, is that a mix of gender and sexual orientation and people all of the artists coming from places that were not new york which is important there's kind of a reverse imperialism at work here but that this mix of gender and sexual orientation and geographical background creates a kind of pre-pluralism potential for pluralism yeah i mean i think that you know that's that's another sort of aspect of how you know, again, this was, you know, this, this wasn't, this wasn't a movement. And this is sort of, you know, I think I call it a group biography that kind of doesn't, you know, isn't about this group biography in a, in a certain sense. And, and certainly, I mean, I was personally really interested in a story that would foreground women artists as, you know, much as male artists. Also a story which frankly, you know, I mean, I, it's interesting, Coenti slip the name, no one is quite sure, but it's, they think it's a conjunction of Conrad Ten Eiken, so, you know, one of these er the earliest Dutch settlers, his name and his wife's name, Anetja. So I, I like that even in the kind of the name of this place, there is some pa gender parity that you don't always have, frankly, in terms of the, you know, the naming of early, uh, of any place, frankly, any location. But yes, that also, you know, in part, some of this, the sense of this being a bit of a secluded place really helped it to be a kind of safe harbor, frankly, in a moment of sadly, you know, very entrenched homophobia after a period, you know, in kind of before the war, where there was a lot more sexual freedom, frankly, and also where women, there was more freedom for women to be able to kind of live alone. And, you know, in, in the kind of 
long politics that are maybe too much to get into here, but, you know, in part related to the Cold War and some of, you know, there's, you know, wonderful historians who have worked on this, including Elaine May, around, you know, what the, the kind of nuclear family and how that was used to distill a certain, you know, stability against the threat of communism. And so, you know, you do have this rise of repression for so that, you know, and many of the artists who were living on the slip were gay, and this did allow them to have a space where they could live and feel sort of safe outside of, you know, from the kind of major crackdowns that were happening around the city. And particularly as things got closer to the World's Fair of 1964, which, you know, plays a plays a, a starring role, I guess, in the in the final half of the book. And there was a, you know, a, a major crackdown on gay bars and kind of, you know, cleaning up the city. I'm using quotation marks, which I realize I should say because it's a podcast. But <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, and I don't think it's a, a total coincidence that you have, you know, an artist like Agnes Martin, you know, painting a, a painting called, you know, Harbor or and talking about it being a, a kind of safe harbor and the notes around the painting or Indiana talking about kind of being at sea before he moved to the slip. And, you know, I, I do think there was a kind of grounding, stable moment and, and a moment in which, you know, where you could have, you know, these artists like Martin and Tawny living alone in, in spaces that were decidedly not domestic, you know, that didn't even have kitchens and, and really creating a different kind of paradigm for, you know, what it meant to be, you know, a, a single person in the city. One of the things about those spaces that you identify as being important, uh, pioneering even, is how these interior spaces were built. Instead of being New York buildings that had hallways and small rooms, which of course in the winter would hold in heat because you could close the door, the Coenty Slip buildings had what we would now call pretty darn open floor plans, in part so that sail construction, sail knitting, I don't know what the word is, and that these spaces weren't just generative for the work that was made by the artists you talk about in the book, but these spaces then motivated two or three or maybe continuing generations of artists' spaces. Yes. I mean, you sort of have... What was fascinating to me is this kind of like the the cliched artist loft idea and concept of Aunt Malech. So it's before kind of the explosion of Lost in Soho. And it's really, it's before, you know, what, what allowed that explosion, which was, you know, the kind of changing of laws for artists and residents to be able to live legally in commercial buildings, to live and buy commercial buildings, as well as, frankly, a lot of landmark preservation laws that were just, you know, sadly, you know, the Landmark Act, I think, was in 1965. So it was just too late to save, you know, some of the very buildings that, you know, an amazing architecture historian and critic like Ada Huxtable was talking about, you know, literally walking down Coenty's Slip and talking about the, the incredible, you know, Georgian 19th century buildings and how important it is to preserve this diversity of, of city life. And even, you know, this idea of, ordinary buildings. And I, and I, I love that too about the slip because these are very, these are, these are ordinary buildings that had to do with, with trade and industry and they weren't all sale making lofts. I mean, I think that's sort of a generalization that is often 
used, but the top floors of the buildings were, and those were the most open spaces. And, and you still, you know, you have these beautiful photographs of, you know, Jack Youngerman's loft where you see this kind of big pulley wheel. You have Lenore Tawney, you know, literally hanging her woven forms from the top of these sail making pulleys to be able to hoist them up off of her loom and, you know, to be big enough for her to see them. And she's kind of climbing on top of the rafters and it's, yeah, it's really pretty spectacular. And yeah, and I think, you know, the spaces, they did allow a certain openness, even as, you know, when I was talking with Jack Youngerman, who one of the gifts of this book was the three and a half years I got to speak with, with Youngerman, who was such a, a generous and amazing sort of philosopher artist. And he was very quick to say, you know, you, you cannot romanticize these spaces. It was a lot of work <laughs> and they were very, very dirty. But he was saying that it was sort of the beginning moments of artists learning, you know, there were artists who started to specialize in coming into these kind of commercial spaces and helping other artists to make them livable. And that sort of becomes, frankly, a more productive job for many artists than whatever other day jobs they had, or, you know, obviously the, their, their art themselves. So it was, it was this moment. And again, I think because it was a kind of quieter community and they weren't kind of coming together to have art moments so much in these lofts, although some of the parties that Rosenquist describes do feel like happenings in a way. And certainly Lenore Tawney had some incredible salons in her studio space that, you know, did involve a kind of, you know, art moment. But it was not quite the same as the spirit of, you know, some of the, you know, the kind of loft movement in the later 60s and 70s in Soho. And so, yeah, it's kind of a lesser known. And these were smaller, you know, smaller loft buildings, too, than many of the buildings in Soho. Let's get all these artists into place. You mentioned Fred Mitchell a moment ago. Who is he? Why does he bring Ellsworth Kelly to the slip? And then how did everybody else kind of end up there after Kelly? Was was Kelly key to that? Yeah. So Fred Mitchell is a really, really interesting artist. And he he, he was really the the person who started it all in many ways. And so he, you know, he he goes to Europe, he wins this Pepsi prize to to go travel in Rome. He meets Kelly in Paris. They become friends. And he comes, Mitchell comes back to New York and he, you know, ends up being one of the founding artists of the Tanager Gallery and the kind of whole scene around that. He's painting in a kind of, you know, an abstract expressionist, if you will, way. And he's he just seems to be one of these artists who was like a real artist artist. Like he was really generous with so many people and had a lot of friends and community everywhere. And he was really one in some ways, I mean, I think Kelly even says he's like his only friend when he moves moves back to or moves to New York after his time in Paris. And so Mitchell kind of, you know, lets him know that there's this space on Broad Street, which is, this, again, another kind of commercial space. And then eventually that there's a space or not eventually a few years later, that there's a space that opened opened up on on Coenti Slip. And I really, you know, I think it's just through walking around the neighborhood and seeing kind of like, you know, for rent signs up in these buildings, again, just because there was so much vacancy. And then, yeah, there's, you know, it's it's kind of how I guess I would imagine this might still happen today in terms of just sort of a network of 
artists, maybe it's a little bit more online today from a real estate perspective, but Kelly and Kelly had met Jack Youngerman in Paris. And there's a kind of prelude in my book where the two of them are at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts, basically not really going to classes, very truant, but just absorbing as much art history as possible and trying to visit you know, as many sites and cathedrals and, you know, the Lascaux Caves and, and all these different places. And then, and also artist studios of artists that they really admired. But they kind of, you know, end up feeling like there isn't a contemporary scene there for them at all. And Kelly moves back first, but Youngerman is eager to move back as well. And is kind of constantly writing Kelly to be like, what, what's, you know, what's happening there? Is there, is there any scene? And so when Youngerman moves back to or moves to New York from Paris himself with his wife, Delphine Sarig, and their six-month-old son, Duncan, they for a, you know, a, a hot minute are uptown at a friend's apartment, but Kelly you know, tells him, okay, there's another building here downtown that's become available. And so Youngerman moves to the slip. And he really described that as you know, he didn't even know, like on his boat ride over from Paris, He's with William Klein because, of course, you know, there's always all these amazing moments of just artists together. And, you know, Klein has a, a small a supporting role, but is, you know, again, one of these fascinating artists who kind of flips through some of the pages of the book. And, you know, Klein is sort of telling Youngerman where Kelly is living. And Youngerman's like, I really didn't know New York. And he's like, sure, it sounds cool down by the ferry. Like, I'll, you know, I'll check it out. So in a way, he didn't even know what to, to expect or what to compare living there, you know, to. And Kelly meets Indiana at an art supply store when he's admiring a postcard in the window of, of a Matisse painting of um, oysters, actually. And, and Indiana was working there and, you know, happens to mention that he's, you know, about to go and move to this place downtown and Indiana was looking for a loft. So it, it all, you know, all these sort of moments like that where there's just these kind of introductions are made and and that's sort of what, what brings all these artists there is a lot of kind of knocking on doors, asking for, you know, what spaces are available or, you know, Betty Parsons knowing, you know, Betty Parsons being the gallerist for Ellsworth Kelly and for Agnes Martin and kind of making that connection. So, so yeah. One of the fun parts of this book for me was, you know, every few pages you would raise, uh, sometimes very intentionally and sometimes not, ways in which the environment and things the artists were doing day to day informed what ends up in their work. And I think my favorite, and I think maybe your favorite too, is the ferries. There was a ferry terminal around the corner from the slip that joined Manhattan to surrounding places on other sides of bodies of water. And so the artists would often end up on these ferries. How do the ferries get into their work? And, and, and maybe a great way of kind of illustrating that is this spectacular Lenore Tawney journal sketch you reproduce in the book. I'm so glad you mentioned the ferries because it really was one of those eureka moments when, like, I think across every single artist there, at some point, they're talking about the ferries, and they're you know talking about going for a ride on the ferries, and the importance of the ferries, and the proximity of the ferries, and you know how to get around the turnstile on the ferries to avoid the five cent pay fee to get on the ferries, and the grocery. You know, Indiana has this whole amazing digression in one of his journal entries around the kind of fruit stands and vegetable stands that were right 
restaurant by the ferry terminal where he would go to shop often for his dinner. And yeah, I mean, I think it relates a little bit to this idea that we've already talked about, but this idea of being able to get into an entirely different environment very quickly. And I think sometimes when you are in New York City, you forget that this isn't actually an island that's, you know, surrounded by water. And and just to be able to kind of get out into into that water is such a crucial, crucial thing. And so yeah, I mean the the ferries were, I think, a space for for thinking and also a more literal inspiration. And I really, you know, I'm so grateful to Kathleen Mongan, the director of the Lenore Pawnee Foundation, because she is the one who kind of well, allowed access to these incredible journals. And when we were looking at one of these drawings, you know, we were talking about how the kind of wake of, so, so Tani has this incredible drawing in her journal that is sort of made standing clearly on, uh, on a ferry looking back at New York City skyline. And, and then you see the kind of, you know, undulating trails of the water. And it's really impossible, I think, to, to look at that and not See her woven forms at the same time, which she and she also she helps us kind of make this not feel like such a forced metaphor because she talks about water and actually specifically rivers all the time in terms of her creative process. So there's a lot of you know metaphors around water and you know literal evocations of water, and then also you know in terms of how you know how the river kind of goes goes through her and and comes comes out in in her work and so there's this incredible raw footage from the filmmaker Mariette Charlton who was living nearby not directly on the slip but was very good friends with with Tawny and with Youngerman and Serig and she sort of sets out to make this documentary of Tawny, which never happens, but there's sort of years and years of footage. And she has this incredible footage of Tawny in her studio, looking out, sitting on a, on a rocking chair, literally making sailor's knots on the end of one of her woven forms. And you can see outside and there's tugboats going by with those same knots kind of on the side of them. And there's, you know, right there, there's also the, the uh, helicopter terminal, which so many of the artists are always complaining about how loud it was <laughs> that just arrived. I think it was in 1960 it first came. But so, yeah, that's a, just a very, you know, literal kind of transcription of, of the the water and how evocative and central it was for them. And of course, you know, I should mention when we're talking about fairies, the other, of course, key figure to mention here is Walt Whitman, who, of course, has so many poems, actually more than I realized, around fairies and around, you know, the water in New York. And that was, you know, a very important influence also on the artists and that kind of sense of, of that history and the way that he was really you know, celebrating the city and the idea of kind of traveling to and from it. And of course, the kind of structure, or not of course, but the structure of my book is kind of about arrivals and and then departures. So it's a little bit around kind of, you know, the boom and bust and tides and, you know, but it's also, you know, I was sort of thinking about how you have to get on a ferry or you're, you're crossing water when you go to Manhattan, no matter what. And so I think, you know, there's a way, too, in which the ferries kind of underscore the environment that you are in. And, you know, particularly, of course, 
the, the slip, which used to be a literal waterway where you would have boats coming, you know, parking, you know, up right into, you know, the streets of the city so that you would actually, there's these amazing descriptions from the 18th century of the, the masks of the masks of ships like trees kind of sprouting on the edge of the, the river. The other thing that works like that in the way you, you know, writer you writes the book is there's a lot of Paris in like the first 30 or 40 or 50 pages, and then there's no more Paris anymore. And it very much works as a, something more than a metaphor for the migration of the capital of post-war art entering the United States or becoming the United States. The Lenore Tawny drawing is from 57, no promises, but we'll try to get it for manpodcast.com. The other thing that really struck me about it in regards to what you just mentioned about fairies and Whitman is, you know, fairies are central to the beginning of Sheeler and Charles Sheeler and Paul Sturian's Manhattan, the great avant-garde film from 1921 that was itself a riff on a previous century's engagement with much, including New York City. And of course, Manhattan enters, the camera <laughs> enters New York on a, on, on a ferry. And Tawny's drawing is almost a um, post-abstraction riff on that very scene. Yeah, that's that's such a great reference to bring to bring in there, and that is really such an incredible film. We actually uh, shared it here at MoMA a few summers ago as like a kind of like online feature, and it was around like thinking about New York, and it was the first time I had seen it. Really awesome. As, as you noted a few minutes ago, one of the things this book does throughout is centers the role women had in creating the New York art world of the 50s and and 60s that comes through really loud and clear across the book. One of the things I noticed when reading it is that everyone at the slip and and, and like darn near everyone in the book was culturally constructed into whiteness. New York City was, however, in the period that this book covers growing from about 9 or 10% black to over 21% black, just a staggering demographic shift. In these same years, the Latinx population of New York was growing, although we don't know how much because the census won't break out that data until 1970. How was the slip so white and what impact does that have on the artists? Yeah, I mean, I think that one, you know, one of the things that what that was really interesting to me in in obviously also telling the longer history of this place was that it is a an area first where the first residents were the Lenape. And so, you know, that was sort of important. That was the first arrival and the first kind of moment. And that it was also an area, a street, you know, literally built by enslaved people who were some of the first uh, arrivers, you know, people who arrive to the settlement in the 17th century. And so, and then you also have you know, despite it being New York and this, you know, idea of a certain kind of liberal or hopefully liberated thinking, there were still many slave ships that were leaving from New York, even after, you know, this had been made illegal. And, and even, you know, from, from right, Lenore Tawney's sailmaking, her, her loft had been sort of a place where one of these um, ships actually departed from. So that, you know, I try to bring that history in to a longer kind of, you know, story that is, is not the artists that, that arrived there were not artists of color. And I think, you know, that, that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of figures that 
that sort of passed through the slip that that weren't, but that was just, you know, the the kind of history of this particular group of artists. And there's even, you know, there's I discuss one of the paintings that Rosenquist is working on at the time that he was living at the slip. And that is, you know, I think attempting to kind of deal with and, you know, mention in a way the kind of history of civil rights that's happening at the time in New York and also the larger country. And this is part of, you know, why many of the artists also were so kind of beholden to and then I think a bit disappointed in Kennedy as well as a president because of his kind of promises for civil rights that frankly didn't happen nearly soon enough um, that we kind of know about now, even more so from looking at the historical record. And, you know, the same, you know, could be said too for, you know, the mayor at the time and, and the kind of policies that, you know, some of the policies that really were, you know, frankly racist in also around kind of development too of, you know, where were the areas that were most quickly, uh, and here's where Robert Moses comes in, but, you know, that were sort of easiest to develop, you know, the, the most quickly and to kind of displace people. And it is, you know, neighborhoods of where you have, you know, not, not just people of color, but, you know, also just neighborhoods where there are more kind of contingent communities or, or communities of people who were, you know, living in low-income housing. And, you know, I was, I was really interested that there's all of this kind of history of, you know, also because the slip is, you know, at one point, Kwani Slip was this kind of central marketplace, really the central marketplace of Manhattan. And, you know, right nearby was a slave market. And, you know, you, where it's even kind of referred to as like the kind of location is between Kwani Slip and, you know, so Kwani Slip kind of appears in those same stories of that. So it's, there is such a, there's such a history there of the kind of the, the difficult history of New York's population in a way. But the artists who were at the time, you know, living there, you know, I think that the, the diversity that they, that they represented was, was more around kind of, you know, gender and sexuality and, and I think some of, it's, it's funny, I asked a younger man a little bit about, you know, did you, about kind of politics of the time and, you know, were you, you know, were, were you going to protest? Were you, you know, were you aware of what was going on at, you know, City Hall not so far from you? You know, was this, or even, you know, the kind of, you know, some of the, the great kind of the marches, you know, civil rights marches and the, the garbage disaster and, you know, all these kind of things that, that we it has come to define this moment in New York as well, and he, you know, I think that the the politics, you know, he, that he was sort of most centrally engaged in at the time was more around, you know, politics writ large around like communism and around kind of you know capitalism and the tensions there. So yeah, I think it was a little bit of a, you know, maybe we could say also it was a place apart in that sense too of, you know, from from the true demographic realities of of a city. But, you know, interestingly, you know, one of the things that was fascinating to me is that there were these moments where you do find mentions of people of color, you know, in truck drivers down at the, you know, at the slip and, you know, throughout history. So, you know, sometimes because of the historical record, harder to find. But that's also, you know, I think one of the the hopes, you know, when thinking about some of the kind of maybe even like calls to action that some writers like Jane Jacobs or, you know, Ada Huxtable, two white women, but who are kind of making at the time 
around, you know, around thinking about preserving place and the importance of community and neighborhoods is to think about, you know, what that means from a very like local standpoint in terms of, you know, so many different communities around New York. I don't want to give away the ending of the book. And I don't think this question does, because even after you answer it, there are 70 pages of the book. But who was uh, Robert Moses and how did he, eh, sort of, end the slip? So, I mean, Robert, Robert Moses worn so many hats in, in New York and been sort of the, you know, mastermind behind so many different building projects. And, and I think at this, at the period of, of where sort of my story picks up, one of the most central of his jobs or duties, roles in New York, was the director, was the kind of leader of the 1964 World's Fair, the kind of architect of that. And it was kind of, as we, we know from Robert Caro's incredible power broker, the twilight, his kind of twilight moment of power in New York before things really did come crashing down for him. And there is... I mean, it's funny to even think of this book as having any kind of a spoiler alert because, of course, you know, I say in the very beginning, they all, you know, they all left the slip and, you know, by 1967. So, but it, I did not think or I did not know that, yes, that, that Moses would be a character in this book. And I certainly, you know, didn't quite realize the role that the World's Fair would have as a kind of, you know, historical moment in the city of New York, but also for many of the artists living on the slip because of the kind of 10 artists that were tapped to be a part of the New York Pavilion to exhibit their artwork on the exterior of the New York Pavilion by Philip Johnson, who had been tapped in turn by Moses. Three of them were artists from the slip. So Ellsworth Kelly, Robert Indiana, and James Rosenquist. And you do have this kind of incredible irony that, you know, at this moment, where the artists are probably getting their biggest stage, not even probably, definitely getting the biggest stage for their art that they've ever had in terms of, you know, the, the number of people who are from all over the world who are coming through the fair, despite the fact that it was not a success in terms of population and, and visitation, but still, you know, millions of people. And at this very same moment that Moses is also involved, you know, very heavily in and famously in the development of downtown and, you know, real plans for raising whole neighborhoods. And, you know, this is where Jane Jacobs enters the story as well, you know, famously arguing to save Greenwich Village and the, you know, the neighborhood where she lived. But also the slip is a part of the story because so much of, you know, the development involves that area as well. And the buildings that were, you know, very quickly being torn down and, and the plans, some of which were luckily squashed, but for, for what that neighborhood could could be instead of the kind of quiet little maritime slip in between these other larger larger buildings. So so yeah, I mean there's a there's a way in which I think it's really fascinating to to think about such a, a small little area of the city ending up involving so many of these kind of major historical figures of the time and not even so indirectly in a way. And, you know, that also was, was really, was really fascinating to me in terms of, again, I think some of the more rampant aspects of progress, which I'm putting in quotation marks and capitalism and, and how a city changes and, you know, thinks about, you know, its own character or, or, you know, kind of what, what progress means to different constituents and, and where culture 
is where that intersection happens and how it can be beneficial to artists, even in a time of really terrible displacement, but also, you know, a real contradiction in terms of how to survive in that kind of a space. The revelation of the importance of four buildings and how they brought people, however many, five, whatever it is, and the way they brought people into New York from all over the world at the time and then end up having such outsized impact in the life of the city and global art is much of the fun of the book. Prudence Pfeiffer, thanks very much. Thank you so much, Tyler. It's been a pleasure. Now open at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, Gary Simmons' Public Enemy is the first comprehensive career survey of the work of multidisciplinary artist Gary Simmons. Since the late 1980s, Simmons has played a key role in situating questions of race, class, and gender identity at the center of contemporary art discourse. Now, for the first time, through a major exhibition catalog and slate of related programs, visitors will gain a holistic understanding of the complex and profoundly moving work of this influential artist. Plan your visit to see Gary Simmons' Public Enemy at mcachicago.org. Support comes from Getty, presenting The Gospel at Colonus, a one-of-a-kind theatrical event under the stars that reimagines the story of Oedipus as a redemptive musical celebration. Hailed as, quote, a feast for both the eye and the ear by the Chicago Theater Review, the show follows the blinded Oedipus as he seeks rest after a lifetime of tragedy, but he is pursued by enemies, including his own son. Based on Sophocles' Oedipus at Colonus from the 5th century BCE, this adaptation blends Greek myth with black spiritual practice for a jubilant, life-affirming journey. Co-produced by Court Theater, conceived and adapted by Lee Breuer, with music composed by Bob Telson. Thursdays through Saturdays, this September at the Getty Villa Museum. Book your tickets now at getty.edu. The Nasher Sculpture Center presents Thaddeus Mosley, Forest, an exhibition featuring five large-scale wooden sculptures. They stand together and unlock shape-shifting experiences before the eye. Mosley describes his compositional experimentation as the pursuit of presence, quote, the alchemy of turning something neutral into something alive. Forest by Thaddeus Mosley is on view now at the Nasher through August 20th, 2023. Plan your visit at nashersculpturecenter.org. Welcome back. My next guest is J. Paul Getty Museum Director Timothy Potts. He joins me to discuss the Getty's co-acquisition with the National Portrait Gallery in London of Joshua Reynolds' Portrait of Mai from about 1776. The painting, typically considered among Reynolds' finest works, is on view in London. The first presentation at the Getty will be in 2026. Timothy Potts, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be with you. Who was Mai? And what was the circumstance of his introduction to London in the 1770s? Well, Mai was a, we're not quite sure of his real status within the society and the French Polynesia on the one of the society islands where he was based when the Captain Cook and others in the 1760s originally encountered these cultures. He was as I say, encountered by Cook on one of his voyages and taken on board and transported back to England in 1774. 
and became quite a celebrity. He was assumed to be aristocratic or even perhaps royal in status, but it's not really clear that he was. He wasn't a nobody, and certainly his his manner and bearing in the in the portraits of him suggest otherwise. But we we're not really sure of the details of his status within the culture because of course these cultures weren't really understood by the English who you know encountered them at the time in the 1760s and 70s. But he was introduced. He was taken up and, as it were, looked after by Joseph Banks, the great botanist, and Solander and others of the time, and fated in London, introduced. He had a, an audience with the king and was something of a celebrity for his couple of years in London, after which he did return and died not so long afterwards. But he was this exotic creature, in a way, of a quite a imperial or noble bearing. He was, people often remarked on his sort of stature and, you know, aristocratic bearing, if I can put it like that. Do we know how or even why Joshua Reynolds came to paint him? No, that's that's not really known. What we do know is that the painting of my was never sold. It was still in Reynolds' collection when he died and in the sale after his death, you know, it was acquired by um, the Howards. But it had been exhibited by him, but always retained under his ownership and was not sold. So presumably it was Reynolds deciding that this celebrity and exotic subject would be of interest to him as an artist. And so but quite the, the the details of the circumstances, you know, exactly when it was painted, we think it's around 1776, which is when it was exhibited. But the, circ- the details of the circumstances, we just don't know. And I guess we also don't know why he held on to it, except that, he, you know, if it had been painted as a commission, it would have, you know, gone out the door. Exactly. Um, and it stayed in Reynolds' studio um, until, he, as you noted, his death in 1792. So, of course... Reynolds, perhaps especially to Americans, is known as a grand manner portraitist. And this is very much a grand manner portrait. I mean, grandest mannerist portrait. Should we take it as a given that, of course, Reynolds paints my in the grand manner and, 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 and that's what we've got? Or, or was there some other way or context in which Reynolds or a Reynolds might have portrayed him? Well, there are certainly other works by Reynolds and other artists of the 18th century of people of color, whether it's North Africans, you know, Africans, or in this case, people from the Pacific Islands that were not in the grand manner and not in poses full length like this one. And in a rather, you know, as I say, imperial pose. In fact, it's most like the Roman sculptures of Augustus Prima Porta. So, it's not that he automatically, with a exotic subject of this kind, would have done him in this grand style. Mm-hmm. I think there clearly the, the fact that it's a full-length figure in a landscape, so it's putting him into a visual context which is in the grand manner of aristocratic portraiture. And that was clearly, as it were, a decision he had to make and did make. So it's not like, as I say, many of the other sort of studies of heads of, let's say, portrait heads of of um, Africans and other people of colour that both in British portraiture, French portraiture, you know, Jericho and others did exotic subjects, so, so-called. So it was a clear decision to paint him in the vein of 
the aristocratic portraits of the 18th century. Thomas Gainsborough's nearly contemporary 1768 portrait of Ignatius Sancho, which I think is at the National Gallery in Canada, is like a halfish, thirdish length portrait. So, you know, that 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 that's probably the nearest contemporary. You mention how Reynolds attired Mai, and it's kind of vaguely classical, vaguely Roman garb, which of course is also the way that William Perry, for example, also painted Mai. What should we take from that attire, or if it's a better word, costuming? Yeah, it's often, this is another of the little, very interesting points of, if you like, of detail, but that are but are quite important and in what it might or might not indicate. Obviously, when you first look at it, it's it reminds you automatically, if you like, of a Roman toga, which again might relate to the, as it were, imperial gesture of the hand and the and as I as I was just saying before, relates perhaps to the prim portra of Augustus. But some of the contemporary accounts talk about him being portrayed in his native fashion or in his native garb. So, and and the cloth of this kind, certainly the white tapper cloth, which is made from a type of tree bark, is a genuinely Polynesian material. And it may have been that this was, he's being shown in that material, although it could also just be, you know, a whitish, you know, material that's made in Europe. So we can't be quite sure. The turban's the other rather curious thing, because that, of course, think makes you suggests, you know, a North African or, or or even Middle Eastern element to it. Whether that was, you know, intentionally added as another exotic, but exotic of a different kind, touched by Reynolds, or whether it was an authentic, or if it reflects an authentic tradition of dressing from the islands, we don't actually know. But it's been much discussed. The other element of Reynolds painting Mai's dress, if that's the right word, is, is like, I don't suspect there are a lot of Grand Manor portraits of barefooted aristocrats. And here Mai is, is, is barefoot. You may not know the answer to this. We may not know an answer to it, but do we have, but like, why? <laughs> well, yeah. And also the tattoos on his, on his uh, forearm. So hands and forearms, clearly... yeah, both of which, if I could just interrupt really quickly, and we'll have the image on manpodcast.com. But you, but but on uh, Maya is, is painted holding his hand so that the back of his hand of one hand is facing the viewer and the palm of the other hand is facing the viewer. So we get to see both hands, both forearms in opposite. So we see the full ornamental tattooing. Yeah, and those are those clearly are things that which immediately set it apart from a normal, you know, uh, Milordi standing in his in his garden with the wife, kids, and so on, or whatever you you. Know, the, the normal that that type of grand portrait. So it wasn't as if he's trying to turn him into a British aristocrat. It's really that mm. here is a figure of some status from a different culture who is being imbued with the comparable, if you like, nobility, but retaining elements of that his 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 native dress decoration, you know, tattoos, and so on. And it is said that, you know, that the headdress was also worn in the islands. But we can't always know how seriously to accept or whether these 18th century comments by commentators do reflect the facts or perhaps what they wanted to believe or was just hearsay. So some of this is, you know, hard to pin down to understand. 
Uh, yeah, I should note that the painting has been in private collections for centuries and, and ultimately little seen by the public and not enormously studied by scholars. And, and so opportunities to do all of this are coming online, you know, in the last week or so. <laughs> Zooming out from the painting to kind of the broader cultural moment and, and kind of as a way of beginning to discuss and understand the painting within that moment. During the Enlightenment, as, as Britain became wealthy and imperial, Brits and other European colonial powers accumulated stuff from all over the world, flora and fauna, geologic samples, just anything that they could pack onto a ship and relocated those objects to the metropole. And of course, in the United States, a generation later, the U.S. government starts doing the same thing, particularly in the trans-Mississippi West. Are, are there elements of this picture that suggest or contain ways of understanding how nation states like Britain acted during the late Enlightenment? Well, absolutely. I mean, this was a, Cook's voyages were very quickly imperial ventures, and all sorts of aspects of appropriation, you know, attached to them, claiming territories. You know, Australia, where I grew up for a start. And along with the actual, you know, claiming of territories came an, a genuine scientific and cultural interest in the peoples, but also, of course, an exploitation of them. In some case, you know, there were cultures and peoples and communities that were massacred. And so the dark side of the 18th century of the Age of Enlightenment, as we still you know, sometimes call it, was very deeply unenlightened in on an ethical and, and many other levels. So it's a period which has these very deep contradictions in it. It was a huge leaps forward in technology and science and everything else, but also pursued through means, you know, military or exploratory, which but they had a military aspect to them. And so Mai's you know, the fact that he was, as it were, taken on board and taken back to Britain. I mean, it wasn't that he was unwilling to go, as far as we understand. He wanted to, and he was saw it as an opportunity to develop, get resources and support for the his the conflicts within the within the group of islands that he came from. So he saw it as a way of getting help with that. At least that was part of his motivation, we understand. But yes, the 18th century is a very, it's an important period, but it has these dark contradictions within it. Reynolds paints Mai in a kind of Pacific Arcadia that, of course, we know Reynolds didn't actually see. We know if the background, the flora and such was informed, might have been informed by any of the flora or botan botanical specimens that, that Cook or others might have brought back to London. Well, there is the palm tree in the background of the yeah. painting. So that's the, I suppose, obviously exotic element in the in the landscape, and a and and a, but a, and an appropriate one. So of course, Reynolds himself didn't know what the French Polynesia looked like or the landscapes there looked like. So he was perhaps who knows would bank would he have had a, a conversation with Banks about what how to represent the 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 background to the portrait? Maybe, but of course that's. That's pure speculation. But he certainly didn't make it look like a typical English background. No, no. Although that palm tree, I don't know, the palm tree is interesting. I mean, there are lots of palm trees in, in continental European art. I mean, you can't have a flight into, you know, a flight into Egypt without one. And, and so it does kind of prompt all kinds of wonderings. 
roughly concurrent to when Reynolds is made this picture, at least in the same decade. Benjamin West is making his noble savage pictures, most famously the 1770 death of General Wolfe at the National Gallery in Canada, picture of Colonel Guy Johnson and Karan Gianti in uh, seven, oh, that's 1776 as well. It's at the National Gallery in Washington. So as Reynolds is making here a, a kind of noble savage picture, do we know, is there any reason to believe that West and Reynolds were in any kind of discourse, personal or painterly for that matter, around how to portray non-European subjects? Gosh, that's an interesting question. I actually, to be frank with you, I don't know the answer. It is that, as you say, the, the chronology makes it entirely possible. Certainly the interest in this sort of depiction and with its ambiguous interest in exotic cultures that are both primitive, but in a Rousseau, you know, in in, in, a, in terms of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, also superior to us in in his sense of being pure, more natural way of living and having a culture that isn't been corrupted in the ways that our more sophisticated, quotes and quote-unquote, cultures have developed. So I think those ambiguities, you know, well, this is a period when those, when when subjects that expose those ambiguities and give scope for portraying those tensions were embraced rather than not. So that's a long-winded way of saying maybe, but I'm afraid that's as far as I can go. I don't know of a lot of comparative scholarship on on the question in, within the context of American art. And of course, Benjamin West sits astride. There's not been a ton of, say, differentiation from work of the 1770s from, say, the 1830s. Scholars kind of too often treat the periods as the same when they are, are very much, especially on, on in the United States, very much not. We've mentioned a couple times a number of the Enlightenment tropes that run throughout the picture. There's the classicizing of the robe, which gestures at both imperial and republican Rome, the obviously invented Arcadian setting, which harkens back to you know Virgil and Poussin and, 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 and so on. And the noble savage construct, which existed in both Europe and the United States or the, the emerging United States. Have you begun to think about how a museum shows a picture like this while also interrogating it for the mixture of periodic and problematic constructions within it? So, for example, is such work confined to a wall text? Or is a broader contextualizing and investigation necessary, something that fills a gallery or two? Oh, absolutely, the broader option. In fact, integral to the decision and the, uh, and the agreement that we would acquire you know, an equal share in the ownership of my was the understanding between us and the National Portrait Gallery that we will use this moment to initiate a research project on 18th century portraiture in all its aspects, both the art, art history in the pure sense, but also the broader cultural context in which the painting was made, what it reflects about European views of or understanding or misunderstanding of these other cultures, the aspects of appropriation and, you know, implicit racism in some of the commentary that um, surrounds it. So we will explore this. This this painting is going to be interrogated down to every you know 
almost every molecule and from every possible aspect. So this will will give rise to conferences, to you know, physical examination of the work and so on. And we want to put it in as rich and varied and diverse a context and ways of seeing it as we possibly can. So not just, and this painting, as I say, becomes the sort of the starting point for this project, but we, as I, as I said it, it, it will be about 18th century portraiture more generally and European. I mean, we are, the focus will be on British since that's what this painting is and the National Portrait Gallery also, uh, that's their strength. But we, of course, but you can't study British portraiture in without also taking into account what's happening elsewhere in Europe, in France, Germany, elsewhere. And, and quite how we convey this these different perspectives on the walls of our gallery, how much goes in a wall text, how much might be a QR code, and then, you know, with different layers of information, for your you know iPhone or at home on your computer that we haven't even begun to work through to be honest it will be a challenge because there's so many angles from which this can be explored and we will be bringing in perspectives you know of culture historians of race theory and so on so aspects of expertise that we don't have within the museum but we'll want to bring to the understanding of this this painting and this phenomenon you know, more widely. So there's lots to look forward to, but of course, we're only at the beginning of that process at this point. You say, of course, but American museums have rarely chosen investigations such as these. I mean, when I, you know, just to mention that the, the, the West at the National Gallery, you know, the National Gallery doesn't even have or use a text with that painting. It's just on the wall as, as an example of European-American hegemony. So to the extent acquisitions or co-acquisitions can motivate investigations that could then guide other institutions across multiple fields, be they academic or the museum fields, that's a real step forward. Yeah, well, we're hoping so. And frankly, but whoever had acquired this painting as a museum, it's the those aspects of it are just so central now to any narrative about it that we could it really isn't an option to do it as straight art history. It just, you know, th this is a much bigger story with many complex aspects to it that we just wouldn't be doing our public any good by treating it as an object of art history in the, in the strict and exclusive sense. Timothy Potts, thanks very much. My pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.